Welcome to NetSmart Care Threads, a podcast where human services and post-acute leaders across the healthcare continuum come together to discuss industry trends, challenges, and opportunities. Listen as we uncover real stories about how to innovate and improve the quality of care for the communities we serve. Let's get into the show. Well, welcome to today's podcast. My name is Tom Herzog, and I'm the host here today. I'm also the Chief Operating Officer for NetSmart, and I'm really excited about our guest today. He has taught me a ton. He's a mentor. I'm fortunate our paths have been able to cross. He's known by many in the call for the cause and communities that we serve. And you know him as Kevin Scalia. He's our executive vice president of corporate development. But I would tell you, he's a person who gets a lot of things done. He helps connect our communities at all levels through things that are happening with the government, to our providers, uh, to those who need a bridge and connection and understanding and how we're able to get things done. Our topic today is going to be on the American Rescue Plan Act. Lots of discussion around this, and we always look to Kevin really to provide what does it actually mean? What can we best do in how we serve our clients and broader community? And what does it mean for each of you uh, as you look to participate or um, really press in to what may or may not be available? So before we get started, Kevin, welcome. Thank you for joining. You know, this is, I've had an opportunity, I'm coming up on almost 10 years now. It doesn't feel like you, it feels like we've known each other much longer uh, than that. And I'm looking forward to today's uh, discussion. But before we jump into it, Kev, I thought I understood what advocacy was. You've taught me what advocacy is, that it's more than just speaking to what we hope to do. It's really around the deeds behind it. So if you don't mind, can you share a little bit about what advocacy means to you, what it means to our, the communities we serve, and how NetSmart, uh, it's a key part of who we are? Yeah. Well, thanks, Tom, and thanks for the nice introduction. To me, um, I had never really done advocacy till the high-tech and era legislation was passed. And uh, when we saw what happened, they were putting all this funding into acute care and primary care to get those providers digitized so that they would be ready when value-based care and care coordination and population health started rolling out. And they were going to start measuring people based on outcomes, and they left human services and post-acute providers out. So we thought that that was patently unfair. And I went to Washington, and I started talking with uh, Patrick Kennedy when he was still in Congress and said, you know, how how do we address this? And he said, one of the problems we see is that there are so many different demands from all the various groups around behavioral health, While and he is a big supporter of behavioral health, there's nobody saying, here's what we ought to do. So since many of our clients are and were, tend to be smaller organizations, we aggregated their voices and took their thoughts and went to Washington, and we met with a number of the big uh, trade associations, the National Council, National Association of Behavioral Health, both of the APAs, National Association of Social Workers, or clients like Centerstone, consumer advocacy groups like Mental Health America. And we said, we need to come at this problem with one voice, not with 15 or 20 or 30 voices. And so we formed a group called the Behavioral Health IT Coalition, 
which you can find information at a bhitcoalition.org. And we said, let's put together an agenda of what it is you all need as providers and consumer organizations and as trade associations to make sure we're providing a clear, concise, and simple list to both the Congress and the Senate as we ask for corrections to this legislation. And uh, it, putting everybody in a room and agreeing on what were going to be the top priorities was not easy, but it, it worked out great. And it's gone on for more than 10 years now. We've worked through five Congresses. We've moved a ton of legislation. You know, and I think it's all coming together. If you look at all the little things that have gone on around privacy and technology and others, in what we now see with the, the rollout nationally in many ways of, of the CCBHC program. And we'll talk about some of that uh, later on. So I think before we jump into that, Kev, I want to just ask you one, you know, insight or example. When you talk about the one voice, I think that was something that I learned uh, when I joined NetSmart was that we have an obligation and also an opportunity to serve our community by bringing together our collective voices. What does that mean? I know that's something you're very passionate about, and it's also made a difference. Can you just give a little more insight into that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of the opposite of what's going on in Congress right now, where the Republicans and the Democrats won't speak to each other. You know, all of these various organizations and providers and payers that we work with, all have, many of them have different agendas. But when we all sit down in a room and say, we can only present three or four or five things, how do we compromise on what would be best for everybody and pick the things and move those forward? And it's that that working together to come up with a common theme, which is not always easy, it makes it much easier to go to Congress then and say, here are the three things we want. We want you to fund these things this year. And here's the benefit to the nation, to the providers, and most importantly, to the consumers of care of why this is all in their interest. So having those groups together and getting common opinions from all the constituencies is very important to moving something forward. So I'm going to save this for probably another podcast. It's my way to get you to do another one of these so that we can talk more about what this means, what has worked, what hasn't worked. And really, I think as we look towards the future, kind of the things we need to be doing. But I'm told I need to stay focused on the topic and task at hand. So I'm going to come back to, uh, and let's move, go ahead and move into, can you walk us through some of the areas the American Rescue Act provide for the communities that we serve, what the opportunities are for our human services partners, as well as our post-acute providers as well? Sure. You know, so we're talking about a $2 trillion bill, and I never thought those words would be leaving my mouth when we started this a long time ago. But through the efforts that we've put together, the Rescue Act has put hundreds of billions of dollars into areas that will help our clients, the populations they serve. So it's, it's a huge opportunity, bigger than anything we had thought I would ever see or anything I thought I would ever see through what we were doing. So starting on the human services side, the Rescue Act puts $4 billion or gives $4 billion to SAMHSA. A big chunk of that $420 million is going to expand the CCBHC program. And the approach Congress took with this is they're basically going to fund up to 200 grants of $2 million each to organizations that 
applied to be a CCBHC and for whatever reason were not selected. And if you remember in the beginning, CCBHC was a pilot program in eight states, and then we've expanded it through some other legislation to 10 states. And there were provider organizations that wanted to participate and there was not enough money to go and do it under that. So this provides additional funding and basically we're gonna be funding everybody who applied to be a CCBHC. So that alone is huge if you think about that as being the future model of community behavioral health, especially for the severely mentally ill in the United States. It has $3 billion in block grants to the state. So a billion and a half increase in the mental health block grant, a billion and a half dollar increase in the substance use uh, block grant. And to, to put that in perspective, the entire mental health block grant to the states in 2019 was $750 million. So this is more than 200% higher than what the total block grant was before. And I'll come back to my thoughts on that in a little bit. On the uh, post-acute side, the CMS is going to increase the FMAP, the federal matching percentage for Medicaid. This is how the feds fund Medicaid in the states by 10%, which is a $13 billion increase for home and community-based services. And that's going to be over the next year. So it's got to be spent relatively quickly. And put that in perspective, it's the single largest increase in home and community-based services since the program was started. And when you think about how these HCBS programs were used, it's basically an entitlement that funds nursing homes and other things under Medicaid but there was no entitlement for home and community-based services. And so all the studies are showing people are getting better outcomes at a much lower cost if you can treat them in the community, which is one of our central themes. Um, and this provides funding to go and do this. So the Kaiser Family uh, Foundation did uh, some work around how would some of these funds or how could some of these funds be used if I'm a provider organization? So you can use it to support the workforce. So increasing direct care worker payment rates, and you're hearing a lot about that in the infrastructure bill now. You can do paid sick leave, hazard overtime or pay dif differentials, hire new workers to expand uh, services, and then retainer payments to help you preserve your, your network. You can offer new or expanded community-based services you can pay for emergency supplies and PPE, assistive technology. You can add mental health and rehab services, which were not typically offered under some of those services. Some of our, our human services clients do IDD services under this, but this could be an expansion for that. And then cost, you can offset cost used to transition people out of institutions and into individual homes. And then just pure expansion of services to adding services to people who need it in the community who would much rather be there, who are, who are on waiting lists right now, offering them services that they desire. So this is a key thing is there's a, way more people who want these services than are currently can be funded by it. So this would create the opportunity to offer people services on from waiting lists into the community. There's $360 billion of funding going to states and local governments. So for our county clients, $65 billion deposited directly into the county budget over the next uh, four years, but most of that funding coming very rapidly. The funding will come within 60 days of the bill signing, but it has to be used by 2024, and you have to continue to maintain your current level of services as well. 
And then there's also uh, an increase. CMS is offering a five-year increase in the FMAP, the, an 85% FMAP for states who offer community-based mobile crisis intervention. So a lot of this work going on with the police and other things for people who are experiencing a mental health or substance use disorder crisis. So it's important as you think about this is to develop plans to secure the expertise and the technology and the service to, to deliver this services. So once your state turns this on, you are ready to go with proposal in hand and ready to kick off the program. Shouldn't be, when they announce the program, shouldn't be the first time you start thinking about it. So Kev, when I when we look through those numbers, and I and there's a lot of intentionality around these things, but if you and I are candid, we've seen programs work effectively. We've seen them be a good thing. We've also seen them be a bust. We've seen them challenging. So I'm going to ask you to offer some opinion. As you look at what's going on here, what do you like? And what are some of the red flags or things that you're concerned about before we get into some of the strategy and tactics that people need to be executing here soon? I think that, um, you know, my experience of 20 years in this field has been that many organizations wait too long to start doing something. This is one where, in many cases, the states, the counties, Medicaid, the feds are going to be given blocks of money that they have to spend legislatively within a time window. And in many cases, like I, I talked about the block grants, in scale that they've never had before. So they have to move fast. You have to move fast. So putting together your business plans, your strategy, the business plan of how are you going to do this? How are you going to recruit people if you're adding new services? Start recruiting them now start the recruiting process, start putting the plans in place, put the technology in place that needs to do it. Because if you wait till the time they go through all their procurement and processing, it may be too late. You may not have enough time to spend the money you may get. To me, that's one of the bigger issues. I think you're also going to see non-traditional competitors come into your marketplace. So a common one from a behavioral health provider, we hear from behavioral health providers, is FQHCs say that they can do everything. And I heard a great line the other day where somebody said, nobody says I have stage three lung cancer, I'm going to go to my F FQHC and get it taken care of. But nobody seems to blink twice when those same FQHCs say, we can do SMI patients, we can do schizophrenia and bipolar, and we're going to take those and siphon those patients off. So making the case for why a community mental health center in this case is uniquely qualified to treat these highly acute patients. But the other side of it is how do you take your services to less acute patients? So under the uh, COVID epidemic, before COVID, let's say, about 20% of the population would have a mental health issue in a year. That's more than doubled under COVID. And many of those people are not your typical SMI or Medicaid patients. So how do you create programs and scale your workforce using technology or digital applications or what have you to address this vast increase in the number of consumers and the demand from consumers for services that you may be uniquely capable of providing but you've been focused on the very acute population for so long, how do you rethink your business model to address that part of it, which may provide funding to help you achieve your mission with the SMI population? So 
there's going to be a big push from others coming in to go after some of this money to expand their businesses. So you have to be aggressive. A big red flag is how do you become aggressive enough to put these things in place before your current or new competitors come in and do it to you? You know, I'm going to recap on a couple of things. I think, first of all, several years ago when people saw NetSmart's been around for over 50 years now, we've largely served the human services uh, community during that entire time. A few years ago, we made this move to start supporting an additional community, often called to as post-acute, but it's really home health, uh, long-term care, specialty-type care And we're starting to see those things more and more complement each other. And I think the interesting thing is some of the same needs around providing care outside the traditional four walls, mobility, data, and analytics are definitely needs for both communities. And what I heard you say, and this is, we've both seen it, is if there's any miss in some of these programs or opportunities, is people don't play offense fast enough or think big enough, I would even say. And they've been discussions, but then by the time they get around to it, it's too late. Either those fundings aren't there or to the red flag comment that you spoke about, others have moved in. And so there's been an expansion. And a lot of times expansion is thought of, well, we'll open up more facilities. It'll be more of a vertical scale. When the challenge or the opportunity is also horizontal care scale, is offering more modalities of care. And what other things that I might be able to do, and maybe I partner with someone in the beginning, maybe those are things that we go out there and do. So Kev, I think that's great advice. I think, you know, Gratefully, it's really kind of underscored why we've pursued the things, because our hope is that we're able to support the needs of our community out there, wherever that might take them, things that they've been doing for a long time or places that need they, that they would like to go. So yeah, I'm going to ask you, I, go ahead. I, just want to, I want to add, add to what you just said, because it's a great point. In a given community, a skilled nursing facility, a nursing home assisted living has incredible demand for behavioral health care services and in many cases doesn't even know where to get it. The mental health center has incredible demand for primary care nurses and nurse practitioners and doctors to provide those services in the home. In many cases, they can't fund it. So how do you get together with these providers who all of you have demand in your markets that the others have skills for and figure out how you can partner in new and unique ways while this funding is there. And I would also say the other part is people start late because they say, well, this is really a one a one-year grant or it's a two-year grant. Is it really going to, to be there for the long term? And I think that the demand, the consumer demand is so high right now that Congress is going to find a way to solve this problem. And you're either going to be a winner in this, or you may not survive to get to the other side because somebody else is going to get the business. Well, I mean, you and I could talk on this all day. If if we've seen... We've seen COVID challenge us in many things. One thing it absolutely has done is accelerated and driven the awareness of what our communities need. And if people remember back to a year ago now, the challenge of COVID and the reality first sat in in some of our long-term care living facilities uh, and what was happening. And then as time moved on, we've seen the challenges around mental health and wellness. And those things now, in my mind, have gotten rid of some of the stigma, the barriers, and people are saying, yes, this is 
part of what we've got to address. And as an employer, we've seen that. We've seen a desire and an appetite more for those services that traditionally weren't consumed by very many people. So I think on the positive, we are going to move to this more wellness mindset approach and that physical health, as Kev, as you've been saying for years, there is no physical health without mental health and that those two things must be combined. And I think the goodness is, Many of us have been doing work now for 20 plus years, laying the digital foundation collectively together. And when you start thinking about scaling and what you can go do, we're ready. And we're ready with the solutions we know. We're also ready to connect and collaborate on the solutions that we need to develop. So, Kev, I'm going to move into another question, and that is what impact has COVID had on the scale of the Rescue Act and other funding for these providers that are sometimes overlooked despite being key links in the healthcare ecosystem? Yeah, that's uh, a great question. So if you think, go back to where we started on question number one around the, the High Tech Act, when High Tech was passed, it was a $30 billion program to implement IT across healthcare. And that was seen as a giant whale of a program and $30 billion was almost unheard of to come through in a single bill. Well, just think about the last year We've had $2.2 trillion CARES Act. We had a $900 billion Consolidated Appropriations Act. We have $1.9 trillion for the ARP uh, bill, and we're talking about another $2.2 trillion infrastructure bill. So the money being spent now is a generational change and a generational opportunity in how we think about community-based care in the United States. And I think that those who lead through this will fundamentally change the way we deliver all of all of the care you just described, whether it's behavioral health, senior living, home care, hospice, what have you, will fundamentally change. If you, you know, in, in various presentations we've given over the last several years, we've talked about the aging baby boomers coming in and this, you know, 20, 30, 40 million people who are going to be retiring and need much more care over the next several years. Congress, as I talked about before, is acting. You know, part of the infrastructure bill is $400 billion for home and community-based services to provide home care, hospice, private duty services in people's home to keep them out of the, out of the community. So when we talked before that you're either going to solve this problem or somebody's going to solve it for you. So Congress is sending, we're not going to put, we don't have enough senior living facilities to put people in nursing homes. We have to treat them in their home. So what is the air, and I'm doing this with air quotes, the infrastructure required to support them in terms of private duty aids and paying parents or, you know, parent paying children to take care of their parents or other types of services. So they're fundamentally think, changing, thinking about how they care for the aging population in the United States. And that could be an aging population with Alzheimer's disease, with mental illness, with addiction problems, with developmental disabilities, all of which our clients take care of and which add complexity to the general, I'm just a healthy person who's getting older type of population. So you've seen these, the Congress using this opportunity to pump a ton of funding. And I think while some of this may be 
time gauged in terms of it's going to go on for two years or four years. There is a tremendous amount of talk about making many of these things entitlements to address the pop, you know, the changes in population that we have coming downstream and to focus on doing more and more and more of this care in the community. Well, I think in some respects, Kev, you know, if we do this right, because I know everyone goes to sustainability and is this just a one and done? And this is one of the reasons why we've been so passionate. We've got to show the outcomes. I'll go back to the Kevin Scalia, for those who know you, Flying V, Mm -hmm. is that we're more focused on outcomes and efficiency than ever and our ability to be able to show that this absolutely does work, that some of the analog approaches that we've used for decades won't carry us forward like they need to. And as I look at opportunities like this, while this time has been hard, the resistance has been significant. If we work and collaborate together, we're going to shape the healthcare ecosystem in a way that we've been dreaming about for decades. And I know for many of us, our passion lies not just on getting things done, but providing a healthcare system that is better than we found it. And I'm excited. Yes, it's daunting. Yes, it's hard. What we've been challenged with has been more than any of us have imagined. But if we focus on the good, there's going to be some really positive things that come out of this. And I'll go back to an acceleration of things that, you know, and I think, Kev, the easiest one I can point to is telehealth. How long have you and I been talking about telehealth? We've been talking about for years and magically overnight when it became, hey, this is the way we're going to have to do things. It became the most rapid, easily adopted technology or solution out there to fundamentally game change how people were going to consume. The only way, no, is it perfect? No, we'll have to adapt and iterate on it. But it did become a way of saying, you know what? We can't do it this way, but we can do this. And we all linked arms to go make it happen. So, Kev, on that thought, and my last question here before we get into some closing comments is, I want you to get out your crystal ball. You're, real, you're always really good at this. You challenged me. As you look forward to what the possibilities might be, you've already mentioned that some of them, the infrastructure bill that's coming up, you know, what's, what's going to happen with CCBHCs, other things. Can you predict the future a little bit or at least give what you see the weather patterns to be that we should be thinking about? Yeah, I think that some of this stuff, especially around the care in the home, is here to stay. If you think about the political dilemmas that we've had in the past where the Democrats say they want to increase everybody's wages, so home care aid should get $15 an hour, while at the same time, the Republicans, to pick on the other side, are saying we got to cut Medicaid spending. So you as providers are being forced to pay more for your staff while the governors are cutting the rates that they're paying you. So that's a, a, a rapid death spiral of how do I put my provider business out of my, my providers out of business. And you're starting to see structural change here where they're saying, okay, you got to pay people $15 an hour to do some of these home care services, but we're going to increase your rate. And we're going to build that statutorily into the funding. We've got things around like uh, rumors around Senators Matsui, Stabenow, and Blunt proposing to make a CCBHC an entitlement and providing an FMAP for it so that states can fund it. 
We got a very positive score in terms of cost back from the CBO. And I think if, if it holds at that level, that would get funded. So things like, and if you talk to the, our clients that have done CCBHCs, they are all saying it provides more funding. They've been able to expand services. They've been able to coordinate care. So it's a win for the consumer. It's a win for the providers who, who needed the capital to expand. So some of these structural things, I think, are going to come out of this COVID epidemic and fundamentally change the way we deliver healthcare in the country and, more importantly, where we deliver healthcare in the country back towards people's homes in a way that they want to. Nobody wants to grow old and die in a hospital. And so the ability to get treated with your family at home or in a community-based provider organization so your family who may be taking care of you can continue to work and have their lives as well, I think this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for providers to reshape the way you deliver care and expand the population to which you provide that care. So I think it's a great opportunity, and we have to move fast to protect our part of healthcare. Well, Kev, you said it. I mean, uh, I'm going to use the, I know it's a cliche, once-in-a-lifetime, but it really is. And I think I can see it. We are on the verge of moving from a payment-centric system to a person-centric system that no longer is primary care, just a medical model mindset. Primary is what I need, when I need it, how I need it, and who I need to see it from. And if we work together, we are going to make this happen in a more expeditious way than we thought. No longer decades, no longer years down the road, but in the weeks, months, and the year before us, we collectively can go show how to make that happen. We collectively have known what continuity of care has been before it became a buzzword. And we can show people when you look at a person, when you work with a person in a person-centric way, we can deliver better outcomes and we can do it more efficiently. So Kev, on that note, as we land here and I give some final thoughts, what else would you like to say, encourage or leave people with in our conversation here? I think it's reiterating what I said before. Start thinking about the plans. How do you think differently about how you're gonna deliver the care? And I would use the last year as an example. You know, a year and a half ago, when we said you couldn't have a remote workforce, when you couldn't do telehealth, you couldn't provide many of these services over the phone, everybody was adamant that it couldn't be done. Well, we've just been doing it for the last year when forced to do it. So I think taking all your preconceptions and smashing them on the floor and saying, if I had to start from scratch and do it the way my staff wants to do it, my consumers want to be treated in a model that works best for everybody, how would I actually go and do that? To your point about being paid for outcomes, I think every provider is going to be at risk sometime in the future. And uh, I think that we've been saying that for years and you're seeing it come up in pilots. It's going to happen. The future, as you said, may not be weeks away for all of that, but I would say it's years away now as opposed to decades away. So getting ready to do that and fundamentally rethinking how you're delivering that care and where you're delivering it is going to be the test of those who survive over the next four or five years. So, Kev, I want to thank you. Great thoughts, great challenges, insight, 
And, uh, you know, on a personal note, I just want to thank you for being an advocate for our community. As I look back, I'm grateful for the opportunity our paths have crossed. You've challenged me to be better and to do better. And I know many in our community feel that same way. I also want to thank you for being an ally, professionally, vocationally. We're fortunate when the paths we cross across people who shape us to be better. And you have definitely done that for me. And on a personal note, I just wanted to give my thanks publicly and, and just right here to you um, as we're talking. And then what I would like encourage everyone else is we hope you're enjoying these podcasts. This is just another way for us to share, connect, and collaborate. This isn't meant to be an infomercial. I know hopefully you didn't you didn't hear that today. This really speaks to wherever you find find yourself, uh, whether you're a NetSmart client or not. Our passion is to speak to the windshield, the items that are immediately in front of us, the landscape, those just before us, as we've talked about, but also the horizon. Those are as uh, that those um, that are coming and are going to ask us to do more or to be better. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, if you take a moment, uh, hopefully giving us that five-star rating, it's a way for us to get the word out there. And we'll continue to press in and engage, or if you have topics or things that you'd like to share with us, please do. We'll include many items in the show notes, links, um, and other valuable information that we've uh, spoken about today. And lastly, most importantly, may we all remember when we work together, when we think together, when we action together, we are always better together. Thank you for the time. That's a wrap. And we'll end, land today's session. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks, Tom. At NetSmart, we understand the challenges facing provider organizations. Our team will help you navigate changing value-based care models with solutions and services that make person-centered care a reality. We'll equip you with technology and services that provide holistic, real-time views of care histories that inform better decision-making and better outcomes. Visit us today at ntst.com. NetSmart, serving you so you can serve others. Thanks for listening to the NetSmart Care Threads podcast. Through collaboration and conversation, we can work together to make healthcare more connected than ever before and better support the communities we serve. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.